Sponsor IP Fabrics automated network assurance platform helps you make sure your network is doing the things you mean for it to be doing. Download the future of DC network automation at ipfabric.io slash packet pushers to find out more. ipfabric.io slash packet pushers. If you use a middle box, such as a firewall or proxy to enforce security policies on network traffic, you are well aware of the problem of pervasive encryption, because if the middle box can't read the data stream, how can policy be enforced? And the usual answer to this, we've all done this, you give a proxy keys so it can be a man in the middle of an encrypted session, at least for those few hosts that you have the keys for. But as most of the traffic you want to inspect these days isn't heading to a server you control, That man-in-the-middle approach, it it just isn't viable most of the time. That is especially the world we live in today. The payload of everything from web to chat to DNS queries, it's probably encrypted. Our middle boxes can't see what's inside to protect us from the bad stuff. But what if there was a way a middle box could still accurately enforce policy on encrypted traffic? Well, that's the research Paul Grubbs has been working on. He wrote about unpacking zero-knowledge middle boxes on the APNIC blog in July 2022, and we are chatting with him about zero-knowledge middle boxes today. Paul, welcome to Heavy Networking. And in a sentence or two, would you tell the folks who you are and what you do? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, So I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Michigan. Um, My research is in applied cryptography uh, and and security and privacy. So I work on like designing and implementing cryptography and then applying it to solve real security and privacy problems. Um, So I work on a lot of different kinds of things. In addition to the work that we'll talk about today on zero knowledge middle boxes, I've done a lot of work on um, like like storage security, like encrypted databases, and also like encrypted messaging, specifically like abuse reporting for encrypted messaging. Very good, Paul. So, uh, so do I have to call you Professor Paul, or is Paul going? <laughs> no, Paul's fine. Okay, okay. I don't even make Paul, my students call professor. me Professor. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, uh, introduce us to this big idea of zero knowledge middle boxes. Keep keep it high level for now because we're going to get into the details. But give us the ten thousand foot view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your intro actually did a pretty good job of laying out the the landscape. So the basic idea is that today uh, we rely on um, middle boxes to decrypt uh, uh, traffic so that we can sort of scan it to enforce security policies. Um, so this this um, man in the middle design where we decrypt the traffic provides like verifiability in the sense that the network and the network administrators can be sure that the policy is actually being enforced because the the network checks it itself. Um, but it's it has a, a lot of other problems, like both logistical and also like privacy. So in particular, like the machine that's doing the scanning can see all of the uh, traffic, which means that they can see like credentials and cookies and sensitive information that's being forwarded through the network and everything like that. Um, so this this pro- this pattern, this sort of like man in the middle pattern has a lot of problems, but is also like super, super common, as you alluded to. Um, so my, my colleagues at the University of Michigan did a study a few years ago, and they found that like maybe like according to their data, up to 11 percent of all TLS connections uh, might be uh, man in the middle for like security reasons. So, so they actually did a huge longitudinal, st- longitudinal study of a bunch of TLS traffic, and they estimated that like as many as 11% of these connections may have been man in the middle going out of whatever network they were originating from. Legitimately man in the middle, you're saying, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um. So with this in mind, so let's imagine uh, a, a potential solution that 
doesn't require decrypting all the traffic. So one way we could do this is to move all the scanning to the clients and just have the clients enforce the policy themselves. Um, so if the client knows, knows the policy, they can just enforce it before encrypting their traffic. And then if the network trusts them to enforce the policy honestly, then they can sort of have the same kind of verifiability guarantee, but we also have sort of privacy for the traffic. So that's a candidate solution. Um, and it's good because the network doesn't see anything that it doesn't already see. Um, but this sort of like client scanning pattern also has a pretty obvious problem, which is that it relies on a lot of trust in the clients themselves. And this like, like having to trust the client to do all this scanning work is sort of a non-starter for a lot of networks because they really have no um, assurance that the policies are being followed by the clients. So we have like two solutions here. One involves the network seeing everything so that they can get this verifiability. And the other involves the network seeing nothing, which is good for privacy, but has no verifiability. And another key element of this here is this, this is different from a distributed firewall problem where you're pushing firewall rules out to a client, because that's just a five tuple kind of a simplistic filter. We're talking about deep packet inspection, needing to scan for malware and such things that are deep inside mm -hmm. the data streams. Uh, which is, again, really the problem that you're tackling here. You're asking the clients in, in this architect's proposed architecture to scan the content of packets before they're encrypted, validating that they are indeed um, containing only trustworthy traffic, things that pass muster, then getting them encrypted and sending them on their way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the challenges that I've had with middle boxes over the last 30, 30 years, so I've been working on middle boxes of various forms Explicit proxies, transparent proxies, redirected proxies is what we used to call them. Now we call them middle boxes, right? Which is where they actually get in between the the end flow, the flow from the client to the server, and they actually intercept the flow and interject themselves. Now, this is not QOS or packet munging or MPLS tagging or VLAN tagging, where you just tag a packet with some sort of recognition. You you match the header and you say, this packet belongs to this category. I'll add a tag be it a VLAN tag or an MPLS tag or, you know, whatever, and then I'll forward it on. Um, this is intercepting the actual flow so that you can look inside the payload. That's the difference between middle boxes and network services. Is that a fair assumption? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So this, is, this really is like introspection into the contents of the traffic mm -hmm. that we're talking about here. Yeah. yeah. And so the challenge here is that over the last five years, we've seen the switch away from unencrypted protocols like HTTP. So 15, 20 years ago, it was fairly common to deploy a proxy, deploy protocols like WCCP or even uh, next hop redirection to just send it over to the box. Uh, and the middle box would then receive the packets. And because they're in the clear, it could just do stuff with that, you know, munch the packets, terminate the TCP session, even if they wanted to, uh, and, and it was common. And then we moved to explicit proxies, which allowed various pieces of middle boxes to occur and the problem now is that the new versions of TLS, especially TLS 1.2 and 1.3, uh, prevent that. And in fact, don't actually have any allowances for it. So for these, any sort of middle box to work or to have a future, and that is what I mean is it's not downgrading the client. So what we see is a lot of clients just downgrading to old protocols, which can be intercepted. A middle box in your research has to be doing something different. It has to recognize that. TLS 1.3 is uncrackable, and therefore you have to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. well, Greg, were you were you politely arguing that we don't need middle boxes, or, no, or that they're pointless? Sorry. Is that where you're going? <laughs> I guess. Well, I guess what I was trying to say is that there's a 
there's a baseline here. There's there's a position about where we were in terms of the the world that I, that we live in as a practical technology. Middle boxes have been um, deprecated in a sense by the industry, not because um, they nobody wanted them. It's because the people who were using were a minority market. So what we're talking about here is companies like Goldman Sachs, financial institutions, uh, high security, who want to be able to get in and monitor what users are doing without necessarily doing it on the user endpoint. Because the way to, to do, or the gold standard for that type of service or you know, for data logging or user logging is to do it without doing it on their endpoint where they have physical control of the device. And in theory or in principle, they can do something to bypass the security policy. So transparent middle boxes allowed all of that logging and the traffic would all be funneled through those boxes, logged, analyzed, keyword search for, you know, whatever it is you want to do, you could do. But TLS 1.3 and the fact that something like 70% of all internet traffic is now HTTPS or TLS encrypted means that the use of middle boxes is fading or has been fading. So I wanted to understand where do where does your version of this these zero knowledge middle boxes, that is transparent middle boxes that I don't necessarily know, how does it fit into that sort of, you know, industry schematic, how we how we work in the industry today? Mm-hmm. Well, I think um our research is really focused on enabling the, the middle boxes that still do exist um, to, like you said, like not have to downgrade uh, connections. So like a lot of middle boxes, like, like you said, like have to downgrade uh, uh, traffic or, or people have to sort of configure their endpoints to not use modern protocols. Um, so what we want to try to do is build middle boxes that like will, our, our, our techniques are, are sort of applicable to modern protocols. Uh, so mm. you don't you don't have to downgrade the protocols to mm. um, get the security benefits of the of the middle box. Yeah. And the reason just for people who aren't familiar with middle boxes, uh, the problem with downgrading the protocols was quite often we had problems where traffic would be terminated by a middle box and then reinitiated. And we would have things like the the security team would have spent millions of dollars upgrading the endpoints to support TLS 1.3 or you know, some sort of advanced encryption standard. And then all of a sudden the middle box hasn't been updated in a decade and it's sending on TLS 1.0, which is vulnerable, unsafe, and heavily insecure. And nobody kind of realized it until recently. And then it became, this is why we have to get rid of these legacy standards. So there are problems with middle boxes that aren't immediately obvious unless you're somebody who's sort of spending a lot of time going through the pain, shall we say. Of mm-hmm. of running one of them, right? So, so, mm-hmm. so it, yours your concept of zero knowledge middle boxes is still to down is still a downgrade attack on the protocols, or is it to to find new ways to insert them in the flows between the end between the client and the server? Yeah, yeah, good question. So the zero knowledge middle boxes are built to be like compatible with um, advanced protocols, so they don't require downgrading. So our right. our zero knowledge middle box implementation actually works with TLS one point three, and so the way so basically the way it works. Um, so so I, I outlined these two approaches before where we can, we can either have the client do the scanning or the network do the scanning. So a zero knowledge middle box, in a sense, is kind of a hybrid of these two approaches where the client is going to be doing the scanning, but they're going to use cryptography to convince the network that they did the scanning um, as they as the network would have done it itself. Uh, uh, that, that, is, that is provide a mathematical proof that legitimate scanning was done as opposed to saying, oh, yeah, I did the scanning. Thumbs up. We're all good here. Take, take my word <laughs> yeah. for it. You can trust me. But yeah, providing exactly. cryptographic so, proof that that was done. Mm-hmm. 
Exactly. So the basic idea is that the client, in addition to sending its encrypted traffic, is going to send this proof. And in a little bit more detail, what this proof is going to say is that if you knew the key that would let you decrypt this traffic, then you would be able to verify that that traffic is compliant with the policy that you told me. And so this proof, importantly, has two properties. The first property is that the client actually cannot lie. So mathematically, it is nearly impossible for the client to send non-compliant traffic, but lie and sort of present it as compliant to the network. Um, and the second property is that this proof hides the contents of the connection from the middle box. Um, so the middle box, all it can verify is that the underlying plain text is policy compliant, but it, it can learn no other information about the traffic itself. So from a privacy perspective, the client side is still protected as well, um, but the middle box is still able in this way to do, to perform policy enforcement. Uh, and that can satisfy audit and compliance requirements, I suppose, in that context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it is sort of a best of both worlds approach in the sense that the, the, the network still has the same assurance that it got before by looking at the traffic itself, uh, but the client still has the privacy that it would have gotten if it had performed the, the scanning, but uh, locally. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about the architecture then for this zero knowledge mailbox. We got the client piece that you mentioned. There's a policy that comes up somewhere that I can do math against somehow. And then again, a lot of math. And uh, I suppose the math would have to be being done on both sides, both on the client side and the uh, the, the middle box mm -hmm. side. And there's a proof, yeah. et cetera. Can you, can you, so like walk mm -hmm. us through a, a flow here. Yeah, totally. So at the beginning of, of time, let's say, the network operator decides what policies they want to enforce in their network, and then they encode that policy in a special format that in some sense the zero-knowledge proof like understands. Um, the, the details really, really aren't germane at all. Um, just it's yeah. it's a it's a, a programming language in a sense, but it's not like C or Python. It's like a, a very sort of weird mathematical one. Um, and then once the network operator fixes this policy, when a client joins its network, the network operator gives the, this, this mathematical description of the policy to the client. And so when the client wants to open an encrypted session and send some traffic, um, it can use a, 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 a regular encryption protocol like TLS 1.3 to connect to the server. Then the session establishment, when they establish the session, of course, the client and the, and the outbound server, like uh, outside the network, shared this, this cryptographic key. And so when the client wants to send some data through this, this, uh, this session that it's set up, um, it first runs this, this mathematical description of the policy against its plain text traffic and then encrypts the data as normal to get some ciphertext. And then it generates a zero-knowledge proof that the underlying plain text of the ciphertext that it's going to send is compliant with the with the policy. And then the client sends the encrypted traffic and the proof to the middle box. And finally, the middle box can run a, a ver proof verification algorithm with the ciphertext and the proof, um, which outputs like either like true or false. So true is like, okay, the underlying plain text is compliant and false is like, like, okay, there's there's some, something going on. And if the proof doesn't verify, the middle box can take some action like can, I, I don't know, like force the client to provide more information or like kick the client off the network or take whatever kind of like mitigation actions that a middle box would, would take today or like raise an alert or something like that. This feels like a potential scaling challenge because we're talking about heavy math. We're talking about cryptography. We're talking about data that's flowing at high rate. Um, and we're also talking about the difference between, are we doing packet by packet enforcement where math's got to happen in every packet or is it flow by flow? 
Um, yeah, that's a great question. So it, it kind of depends on the policy. Um, an important uh, feature of these zero knowledge proof systems. So cryptographers, like in the last like 10 years, have developed a lot of really cool zero knowledge proof systems that have a really important asymmetry in the amount of work that's being done between the prover and the verifier. So we can think that even though the, the prover or the client in this setting might have to do additional work, um, the additional kind of like concretely, the additional overhead of verifying a proof for the middle box is really pretty small. And in fact, it's much smaller than the cost of actually running the policy check and encrypting the traffic. Um, so sort of no matter how complicated the, 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 the statement of the policy is, the middle boxes check is sort of a constant amount of computational work. Mm. And the, the proofs are in our initial implementation are concretely quite small. They're only like about the same size as a DNS packet. Um, and that would be like the entire proof. Well, the, the elements of the policy come in here too, because you've got the policy and its aggregate, but then you've got individual elements of the policy. And for typical like firewall processing, you're, you're kind of going element by element through that policy to before you're going to allow or deny a packet. Uh, is it similar here where you'd have to be doing on the client side math for the first policy element, then math for the second policy element? Or is the policy kind of, um, you know, turn turned into math as a whole. Uh, and then against that one gigantic blob of math, I can do one bit of math to prove that I'm policy compliant. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So the policy, by being a little bit smart about how you construct the actual like proof, like the policy encoding, you can make the proof generation computationally much less work than going through the policy and checking each element one by one. Mm -hmm. um, so you can imagine like, well, I, I don't know how germane the details are here, but you can imagine like if you if you have a policy that's like a DNS block list, if you build a, like a tree over this policy and you can sort of prove membership in the tree much faster than it would be to just go over every single element one at a time. Right, right. Okay. So just applying, you know, computer science algorithmic uh, computation to this can, mm -hmm. can make that much more efficient. But how efficient is it, Paul? Um, is how long does it take adding this mathematical overhead on the client side before a connection is established and we can start pushing data through it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So the in our initial implementation, which maybe it would make it more concrete to just explain sort of what we implemented. Um, so what yeah. we implemented was a zero knowledge middle box protocol. Um, like our, our key case study was zero knowledge middle box protocol for um, DNS filtering. Um, so <clears throat> you can imagine the policy here is like a list of domains that we don't want the the client to re like a resolved uh, DNS query for. So for a DNS block filtering, list- A standard yeah, sort of firewalling, yeah. very common yeah. firewalling technique is for people to have a DNS service which you know you, you can pay various companies, IBM, Cisco, Cloudflare, et cetera, and they'll provide you with a filtered set of responses. And you can say, I want to block these domain names because they are related to fascism or pornography or you know whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're saying you want to be able to get in between the DNS query so that you can filter them in flight, not necessarily depending on the provider. Yeah, exactly. So you can imagine like, sort of this is like a separation of duties of these filtered DNS. So you could, mm -hmm. you can, the network can sort of create a, like a filtered, like a de facto filtered DNS service by enforcing the filtering policy in the network. And then like any old DNS server can be filtered according to the rules that they want to um, set up using the zero knowledge middle box uh, policy. Um, so like, so the policy here, the important thing for the size of the policy is like the size of the block list. Um, so we experimented with um, a block list of 2 million domains that we took from, I think it was like maybe a, a DNS firewall 
a GitHub repo that we yeah. found. Mm-hmm. Um, There's a bunch so of like, out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we found that like, so, so asymptotically, at least the size of our proof only grows logarithmically in the size of the domain. So think like um, a block list of 2 million elements is only going to be like log of 2 million is something like 21 or 22. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the scaling, at least asymptotically is, is pretty advantageous. Um, the concrete performance is, um, probably the key challenge that we found. So we, in our implementation, we split the cost up into like an initial one-time cost of establishing a session, um, where we do sort of like an initial proof of the, of the session key that can be reused across packets. Uh, and then we have like a per packet cost, which is smaller. So the initial session establishment cost in our implementation was like 15 seconds. Um, Mm. so this is like 15 additional seconds of latency to establish a TLS 1.3 session. Um, Mm. and then once you do this 15 second cost, we can do a proof of DNS block listing compliance um, in like three seconds. That's still slow. Proof in that's, we'll, we'll, this is just the proof, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. proof proof in three seconds, meaning it hits the middle box, meaning the client side's pr- done its proof, it hands that proof off to the middle box who's got to validate it, and then yeah. it goes through, and that's a three second overhead? Right, so the, the client's computational cost is three seconds, and the cost of, to the middle box of verifying that proof is actually quite small in our initial implementation. It's only like five milliseconds. Mm. Oh, okay, okay. So mm-hmm. we got great scale on the middle box side. So, so the bottleneck now in this proof of concept work, which is this is research. This is where, where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it's uh, I guess I would describe it as unusably slow, but it works. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, yeah. So these costs are like very much from a prototype and we actually already have some ongoing work that gets these costs down to like the session establishment think like 1.5 seconds and then issuing a proof is like i don't know maybe like six or seven hundred milliseconds so that entails sort of different scaling trade-offs on the middle box and the the proofs are a little bit larger um, and they are take longer to verify but we still think this is interesting because the the costs here really are purely computational so if you had like for example trusted hardware on the middle box then this the cost of verifying the proof could be like made very very small mm. okay the podcast conversation will continue after i entice you to engage with sponsor ip fabric well, why do you care about ip fabric because you've been working through the long process of automating your network you've been ramping up your coding skills and coming to grips with ansible and you even built an automation test lab so Maybe the train's not fast, but your network automation train is rolling. Well, how do you keep the momentum going? The answer has to do with data, structured data representing end-to-end network configuration and state. You've heard us talk about infrastructure as code, right? That. Okay, what does all this have to do with IP Fabric? IP Fabric recently sponsored an EMA research report discussing the future of DC network automation. And this revealed that more than half of organizations that use manual data gathering processes feel it undermines their automation efforts. That's where IP Fabric comes in. IP Fabric uses structured data to represent the network in a variety of ways and make those representations highly accessible to you. From the EMA report, when an engineer has everything they need to execute a change right in front of them, it leads to high quality work with a quick turnaround time. 
IP Fabric uses structured network data that it's gathered to represent the network in a beautiful GUI. IP Fabric will show you layer two and layer three maps, help you create custom sanity checks, simulate end-to-end paths, display multicast trees, break out ether channels, model security policies against traffic flows, and even makes these visualizations available via API so you can integrate them into the rest of your ops tooling stack. The EMA report, that's a good place to get started with IP Fabric, and you can download that report for free at ipfabric.io slash packetpushers. On the first 10 of you to download that report, you're going to be sent a little something from Team IP Fabric to help you as you brainstorm your ever-evolving network automation strategy. That is ipfabric.io slash packetpushers to download that free report. Now that you've been sufficiently enticed, we will go back to the podcast. Um, so the, this initial test you did with the DNS block list, 2 million entries, and we've got this this amount of scale you know, so far, and this this system works. Um, so scaling on the client side, that's a challenge. Uh, and you're working on those trade-offs where it sounds like you're pushing some of the computational burden over to the middle box where you can't, can't push that too hard or you're going to be you're limited in your scaling in the middle box. Mm-hmm. But okay, there's ways mm-hmm. that this architecture, let's presume there's ways that this architecture could be made to work. Uh, at a production level where, you know, people mm-hmm. are needing to push millions and millions of, uh, of flows through this thing, uh, an hour a day. Uh, mm-hmm. are there other, you know, just with the DNS, uh, block list, we've got one application, but let's talk about other kinds of application types and, uh, and filtering that we can, we can do. Are there limits on this or in theory, could you apply this to any sort of a flow you wanted to on the network? In theory, I mean, so, well, <laughs> In theory, for me, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a computer science professor, like in theory, like means like something like very like sort of like pie in the sky. Um, (laughs) It's okay. In theory, with that caveat, in theory, the zero knowledge proof um, uh, tools are flexible enough to express any policy you want. So in in they're really um, able to express arbitrary computations in the same way that like an FPGA can express any circuit. Um, you can do a zero knowledge proof about any circuit. Mm. Now, so that's so that's in theory. Um, in practice, the 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 infrastructure and the and the zero knowledge proof tools are flexible, but there are some limits in the sense that really, really heavy computation, like, okay, so I'll give you one example of something that I think would be very, very challenging to make work, and that is running a neural network on encrypted traffic in a zero knowledge proof. The neural networks, are they're they're not so complicated mathematically, but they involve a lot of really heavy floating point operations, which is something that the zero knowledge proof can't do super well yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So something that you could imagine would actually work, and we we believe this this can be made like relatively efficient, is something like doing like text processing on packets to sort of like do like like content-based filtering, like keyword filtering or like data loss prevention. Um, where you sort of want to, you want to make sure that like a, a file from like a list of sensitive files isn't being like exfiltrated from the network. Um, those kinds of applications, um, I think like both in theory and also like concretely can be um, done with this zero knowledge middle box architecture. Yeah, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd want to do a middle box on AI computational environments at all, or HPC or any type of high density data, data intensive type processing because they're going to be located securely inside of a data center where there is no edge. The edge is the, is the computer in the rack running an app and the core is the other computer running the app. I think where middle boxes come in is when 
uses are remote from the server, physically remote, that is not located inside the data center or inside a secure boundary. So I'm thinking here of if you're working at a secured facility, say a you know, FBI, NSA, GCHQ, or a nuclear, when you are inside the physical boundaries, the middle boxes are not used internally because the trust boundary is actually set. You do want to have a middle box or you may want a middle box when traffic crosses the trust boundary or crosses the security boundary Mm -hmm. um, because you assume that people inside the boundary are trusted or the apps inside the boundary are controlled in some way so that they can mm -hmm. be trusted. And so now the second part about this is, um, so policy is an issue, but the second part here is that any sort of impost on AI or HPC or operations inside the data center don't achieve anything. They actually take you backwards because they cost you power. They cost you latency. We have uh, people out there with data centers who are looking for 100 milliseconds device latency improvements, uh, which will save them 5 to 15% of their data center cost. And so middle boxes inside of a, of a, of a computation environment, like a data center or, you know, whatever you want to call that thing, not necessarily. It's usually you only want it at the edge. And in that sense, latency becomes more acceptable. So when we start to do edge verification or edge checking, you can add a second or two of delay. But the challenge that I have with the, with the, the ZKMB or the zero knowledge protocols that you, um, middle box protocols that you're proposing is that they're actually adding latency. And as networks increase in speed, three seconds of latency becomes unsustainable. It's, mm -hmm. you know, we are already uh, moved from in-house DNS servers to cloud-hosted DNS servers just so we can get the DNS lookup latency under 500 milliseconds. And mm -hmm. those DNS servers are geographically distributed. We have companies like Cloudflare and CDNs like Akamai doing DNS at the edge with filtered lists and all that sort of stuff just mm -hmm. so we can cut a second off the initial setup of session setup, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's my concern about the zero knowledge middle boxes is how do we make this usable? There's a need for this. There are people who will take the trade off. So if I'm Goldman Sachs and I have a fiduciary responsibility to track everything that my traders do so that I can defend myself in a court of law and say, my trader did not use privileged information to make himself you know, 50 million bucks on the side by doing a, a, you know, a trade on his, in his personal account. And I can prove it because we tracked all of his conversations. They will accept some trade-off. But what we also know is that if the latency is too high, they'll just use their smartphones. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. So yeah. That's, mm. that's, that's a, that's a good point. I think, so I think, um, there are certain kinds of computations where like, like certain kinds of network traffic where like per packet proofs, I think the, the overheads really are uh, prohibitive, even if the, even yeah. if the, the client scaling gets better. However, I think DNS is an interesting example here because DNS queries usually are like only they, the, the latency cost of them is occurred only like at the beginning of a browsing session or like when you go to a website. Right. And yeah. also DNS queries are really heavily cached um, on the client. So you can imagine like the initial cost of generating this proof can be amortized over like going back to the same website. And like, if you cache like a DNS record for a day on the client, then that initial cost, like it, it gets amortized quite nicely. If you go mm. Resolve the same the same website many times. So I think you're right that latency, like cutting latency in DNS, is a concern. But I think also the 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 
the the kind of like workload profile of DNS queries means that it's very amenable to to paying a little bit yeah. of the extra cost initially. Yeah. No, because I, then I, because I then would the take sort of umbrage of that. I think you're wrong. Yeah. I know okay. for a fact yeah. that Google has gone to a great deal of trouble inside of Android, for example, to ensure that the DNS lookup is actually down under 500 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. They've spent literally tens of millions of on developers and and its own DNS infrastructure. A big part of the reason that Google has its own DNS servers at 888 and 999 and IBM has its 999 and you know so on and so forth is because they want to accelerate the performance of the internet. In fact, the reason that Google deployed its own DNS servers and made them publicly available was to improve the connection speed and to improve the speed of the user. And mm -hmm. the reason for that, of course, is the faster it goes, the more money Google makes because the faster Greg, the ads you're, you're picking a fight about the on an assumption that we would deploy this mm -hmm. internet scale. And I don't think this that's where this fits in. Zero yeah. knowledge yeah. middle boxes fit into yeah, a just, very specific niche. I agree with mind. you. And I'm just putting it in context to say, if, if I, this would, from what I can see from reading the documentation and understanding, I'm not very strong on the math because it's just a long time since I did math like this, but you could take this to Goldman Sachs and say, I've got a way and your impost or the cost to users is this, but you get the benefit of cracking middle boxes into every flow of your users. And they have an obligation to track the traffic of its employees, right? Then they might do this. If that's the case, then this has, that's the application for it. But I, what I wanted to say to people who are listening, this is a, this is a hypothetical research paper. So that just take that as context. And I, I'm trying to draw the thread to say, where do you use this? Where's the value of this in terms of the overall internet? And say, there's definitely a need for it. The question is, in a, and for example, I also know that there are certain large enterprises like you know financial institutions and high security places actually working in the IETF to say, we can't have TLS 1.3 because it breaks our security policy. <laughs> Not getting very far. The HD, wow, I, IETF yeah, is actually going like- sailed, I think. But yeah. Yeah, that's right. That discussion was happening at one point. Yeah. But there is mm. this, this is a need. We do need this for certain people. And so I would like to think that, you know, you would make contact with somebody like those institutions and say, here's a solution for you. Or if there is a person out there listening who wants to make a startup that's your target market <laughs> niche audience but and it's not popular today to make startups for niche audiences i must say that's not what mm. they're looking for but they go yeah hey, Paul, if you, gotta... so if you're if you're listening and you want to commercialize zkmbs the let me know email me <laughs> <laughs> i i welcome the, there's no patents or anything like that so if you want to commercialize it like you yeah. run with it Paul, I want to talk about uh, something on the, the client side, uh, security related here. Uh, I want to understand how the math prevents a certain client side attack from, uh, well, th this scenario, let's say I'm a bad guy, I want to compromise the client side so I can inject my my nasty encrypted traffic while also injecting packets towards the middle box saying that my nasty encrypted traffic is is legit. It totally passed the policy. How does the architecture that you proposed here or that you've actually been testing, how does it prevent this sort of attack? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good question. So explaining explaining this in detail is a little bit beyond the scope of this uh, podcast, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll just say this is a little bit unsatisfying, but I'll just say that the the policy and and the way that the zero knowledge proof um, is is designed, um, we we can prove that the the security guarantees of of the zero knowledge proof system prevent the client from sort of lying about uh, what traffic they're sending. 
Um, and so because they're prevented from lying about the contents of their traffic, we know that the, the policy check itself checks the policy correctly. Um, and so the client can't lie about the policy check passing and it can't lie about the traffic it's sending. Um, so if you put these two things together, then you can sort of guarantee that the client can't lie about the about the um, the traffic being sent. Although, so I do want to say there is one important caveat, which is that zero knowledge middle boxes, like pretty much any network, like pretty much any scanning based network security solution can't deal with clients that encrypt their traffic twice. Um, so if the client and the server sort of collude and share a, a secret, another secret key kind of external to TLS, and then they encrypt all their TLS traffic again with this key, then the zero knowledge middle box it doesn't know about this inner encryption and so can't sort of enforce any policy. So that tra that traffic is just going to look like random data. Um, mm. So that's an important the circumvention of the zero knowledge middle box architecture is still possible using these kind of like inner inner encryption techniques. But aside from that, you know, the answer mm -hmm. is cryptography and the way that that cryptography is done on either end enforces that what we're saying is true is is in fact true and provably so and there's no way mm -hmm. to fake that right right so the the security guarantee that's relevant for the zero knowledge proof system is soundness um which is if if any of the listeners are familiar with like kind of like mathematical logic soundness in in, in the same sense of uh, soundness of like a, a like a logic um so soundness means that you can't prove false statements but in the context of the zero knowledge middle box architecture a false statement would be something like the underlying plaintext traffic of this ciphertext is compliant with the policy when it's actually not. Um, so the soundness guarantee of the zero knowledge proof system prevents uh, this kind of like producing a proof that verifies for a statement that's false. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, I want to shift to the middle box. Is there any new attack surface that could be introduced at a zero knowledge middle box? Some sort of um, uh, denial of service, let's say, where the middle box gets overwhelmed with requests to do math in an effort to kind of take it out of the flow and you know, cause, cause problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is actually a, a really, really good question. And I, I, I noodled on it a little bit. Um, I think there is additional DOS um, possibility in the sense that the computational load on the middle box is necessarily increasing uh, in this in this architecture. Um, however, I think the 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 risk of DOS is in some sense minimal because there's no way that I can see to sort of amplify um, a, a, a DOS attack on a middle box. So, in the sense that it seems inherent that if you want to force the middle box to do like if verifying one proof takes like n units of work then the only way to force the middle box to do like k times n units of work is to open k connections mm. um so there's really no way to like like use very few connections to force the middle box to do like a huge amount of work mm -hmm. um so because the, the like the scaling of of the computational overhead is necessarily like linear in the number of proofs that you're yeah. in the, the sort of the number of packets that you're verifying i think the the dos risk is really just um you have to you have to just send a lot of packets to the middle box well, uh, you, to to do a computational well, dos you said no amplification but if i'm let's say i'm not a client legitimately on the network but i happen to know an ip address that i can get at on that middle box if i'm some arbitrary third party could i you know corral my command and control network and just you know hammer that thing with a bunch of uh, packets that look like oh these are things i should be verifying 
or does the middle box only talk to clients it knows are, are legitimate and would reject packets that are like, I don't know what, who you are or why I would be doing math here? Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the middle box, at least my, my idea of this would be that the middle box would have a, a way to sort of pre-filter packets that don't come from the sort of set of clients that it needs to, that, mm. you know, to which its policies pertain. I don't um, know you, so, I'm not doing any processing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe it would have some sort of like, I don't know, a list of yeah. MAC addresses of, of computers that it like actually filters and, so and not, verifies proofs for. Not inherent in the zero knowledge protocol, but you know, some sort of like, like any sort of standard protection you would do in network architecture and say, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna allow these unknown parties to be talking to this box. I'm gonna filter that off. There's, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's MAC address or IP address or something mm. like yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. The so flaws, the, the flaws I've seen in middle boxes uh, with related to DDoS and, and distributed DDoS is the actual implementation of the platform on which they run was open to abuse. So we've seen plenty of middle boxes over the years. Somebody sends a packet to it and it responds with an amplified response. So NTP active, you know, on a middle box and somebody sent up an NTP packet to it. But I think the other one we've also seen is resource exhaustion. And But you're saying that I would have to create some sort of out of band mechanism to restrict the number of clients connecting to the middle box. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in some sense, the zero knowledge middle box architecture doesn't introduce new like resource exhaustion attacks. Um, yeah. So the, the resource exhaustion attacks that like can come up um, would be, you would be able to mitigate them sort of with standard techniques. Um, so just in the same way that like today, middle boxes have to, there need to be limits on how much processing they do. Um, a zero knowledge middle box would sort of need to be protected using the same, the same limits to make sure that like, like you said, like clients couldn't do a resource exhaustion check just by sending a bunch of proofs. Mm, yeah. Or a request to be proofs. Could I, I could just imagine that there's a bunch of endpoints. Uh, so, well, three, let me just come back a little bit then. You know, for example, we've seen in years gone by, telcos would put middle boxes in so that they could control what users could access or so that they could insert their own ads so they could override a, a, a website would be presenting its ads and then they would insert their own ads and then take the profits around that. Or they would th use the inspection to throttle a, a user's traffic and say, yeah, we'll let you get through to these websites, but if you go to these websites, you have to pay us extra. Um, and so I don't think zero knowledge middle boxes as far as what we've talked about today would ever be able to participate in uh, blind middle boxing or non-detectable middle boxing like we saw in years gone by. But equally, endpoints could be configured to send to exhaust the resources of the middle box if they know about the middle box and its existence. Mm -hmm. Certainly, yeah. So, like a, a like a yeah. distributed like like malware network, like some sort of botnet. Yeah. Um, if they were on the network, definitely could yeah. mount a resource exhaustion attack. Yeah, um, but if a middle box is in a private network, that's that's an unlikely situation. You, it's very difficult to perform a DDoS. From inside right, corporate right. network, yeah. Right. One one imagines that, like, if the, if if it's not publicly reachable, then it would be difficult to do this. Yeah. yeah, and the challenge, of course, is that the use of private networks is fading quickly. There probably mm -hmm. won't be private networks within the foreseeable future. Certainly within a decade, I think private networks would be an exception, not normal. Mm -hmm. That, yeah. that day, yeah, you know, we're moving to Actually, the public when. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, can I ask you? Can I ask you a follow up question to something you said earlier? Of course, always. Um, so you were talking about 
you you have this sort of like trusted perimeter inside which you don't use middle boxes. But I was wondering if you have an opinion about like zero trust architectures changing this. Because it sort of my understanding is that people sort of are sort of moving away from like perimeter-based defenses and that like even mm-hmm. in what you would consider to be like internal communications would be like encrypted, but then that would also sort of necessitate some sort of like introspection or security policy within internal communications. I guess there's there's many different ways to define zero trust network architectures. So ZTNA <laughs> or ZTNA, as I prefer to call it. Sorry, sorry if this is a sore subject. <laughs> no, I'm just an academic, okay. so it's, it's a loaded subject, Paul. It's a loaded, it's subject. A loaded <laughs> subject because there's a lot of interpretation and there's a lot of vendors that used to sue some form of perimeter security that have rebadged their technology as zero trust because they're doing it at the edge and they're controlling either the client at the edge or doing SD-WAN at the edge or inserting a box at the edge um, and then saying, this is zero trust after this by putting the perimeter here, it's zero trust after that. Does that make sense? So there is an, there's, a, there's a swath of implementations. To my mind, a genuine zero trust is when your smartphone is running an agent and it's combined with not only securing of the operating systems and securing of the applications, but there's also some sort of identity monitoring. And this is probably active identity monitoring. That is, it's not just enough for you to log in with a 2FA, you know, be it hardware or software 2FA. It also needs to check that once your session is made, who you are, what is your role inside the organization? Should the receptionist, you know, or what do they call it? The front office manager, as they used to call started calling them, or you know, greetings advisor or something like that. You know, should the receptionist in the company have access to the uh, HR payroll database? And if your identity profile doesn't support that, then you should not get access to that. And then it should also be maintained in such a way that if you are accessing the HR database from within a geographic boundary, say all the people in my HR belong in a certain country, and then suddenly there's an access from China or the UK or some other country around the world, then I now have a breach. So zero trust is, to my mind, intimately linked with identity management, or and but also persistent identity management. That is, it's a constant and ongoing because that's your first set of the boundary is, is the user the user? And that has to mm-hmm. apply not only to um, fleshy meat bots, it also has to apply to M2M. So it has to be machine to machine communications also have to be applied to the identity management and there's a role there in terms of your zero knowledge middle box or the theorem behind this to be able to say, is this machine to machine communication actually valid? Is this client actually one that I want to permit to access my infrastructure and then add it into my identity system and then track its persistent identity as it moves through the system? And then the second thing is to then say, what policies are attached to this user? So now you end up with if this is a person's identity and I have these policies, then I have to continuously monitor those policies and continually update them. And then I have to be able to say, um, you know, the perimeter stops being a hard thing and becomes a very virtual thing and it becomes very centrally controlled. So zero trust network access is saying who can access the resources in my network. And generally the way that we do that is via overlay networks. So mm-hmm. we do TLS. We, you know, obviously the obvious one is client takes all of its traffic, puts it inside of a TLS 1.3, which is uncrackable and sends it off to some in the cloud resource, which then cracks it open. Zscaler, for example, uh, Cloudflare, uh, Cisco has a service in this area, Akamai, you know, those services are like armpits. Everybody's got them these days. There's nothing special about them these days. But what you want to be able to do is validate that is this client um, allowed to connect and then how do you monitor that identity persistently? Because that's the missing piece. 
and have most zero trust network access today, in mm-hmm. my opinion, for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you're you're saying that the 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 zero trust piece is more about um, identity um, management, identity verification, no, than no, not at all. I'm saying it's a it's a swath of activities. Uh-huh. Is this a viable source? Is that and then like is the user who are who they say they are, and are they persistently still the same user? Did somebody hijack those credentials and use them somewhere else in the system? Is what mm-hmm. you need to prevent. Um, if they're making a query, are they allowed to query the resources that they're attempting to query to? Does this person meet the profile? Uh, there and there needs to be some sort of intelligent automation, or call it artificial intelligence, calls it machine learning, to say if you are, you know, an engineer who's in the help desk, then yes, you're probably allowed to have access to this. But if you're a person who works, you know, in payroll, why are you suddenly looking at this information or that sort of thing? I think mm-hmm. then it goes much much further to device validation. If you're, if someone's laptop is connecting to the service, is that laptop authorized? Is the laptop in a safe and secure state? Is the disk? Yeah. Does that, that make sense? That, that, that constant reevaluation of of state mm. of that device. You know, is, yes. Mm-hmm. Identity is yeah. just one of of a handful of key activities going on in zero trust network access. Mm-hmm. Um, I just lean into that one because that's the one not very well addressed today. And, mm-hmm. and the price of of you know zero trust network access with identity management. You know those companies are selling for tens of billions of dollars in value today, and that mm-hmm. market is that was identified ten years ago and largely addressed. So zero mm-hmm. trust is not just one thing; it's actually a swath of safe. Is my device valid? Is it company issued? Is it allowed to attach to the overlay network? That overlay network might be TLS. And here's the other thing too: is your servers might be in an off-premise cloud. They might be hosted in AWS or Azure or Google or Alibaba. And you have no control over the hardware that they sit on. You don't even know if AWS is safe. You have to sort of, mm-hmm. remember we used to use these telco networks over MPLS and we had to trust that they were safe. As it turned out, they weren't safe and they were vulnerable to all sorts of security threats and interceptions. And that's a big reason as to why we moved to TLS. So can we trust AWS? No, we can't. How do I make uh, zero trust network access inside of AWS when I don't own the physical infrastructure. That is a very, very hard and unsolved problem today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Do you think there are like, um, it would be interesting to apply the zero knowledge middlebox framework to these kinds of questions about identity verification and zero trust? No, identity is a solved problem. I think the challenge mm-hmm. here would be that there are other aspects here. Could the could the maths, I think what you need to think about is how do I take the math and apply it to a, a suitable market? So can I verify that the laptop is authorized, that the operating system is in a fit state and is are the appropriate tools deployed? Is my identity tooling in place? Uh, am I, you know, what am I connected to? Wi-Fi? Am I, which DNS am I configured for? Uh, it might be beyond what ZKMB is trying to achieve, I think. Mm-hmm. But ZKMB might be part of a broader technology set that could address the issue. That's mm-hmm. my instinct. I agree with that. I'm mm-hmm. not- Interesting, okay. That's not my, le- mm-hmm. let's just say I d- I've never set up a startup because I don't think I'm the right person for that. <laughs> well, Paul, who's, who's expressed interest in your research? Have there been security groups or any, whether commercial or open source teams that have paid attention to what you're doing and had feedback for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the reception from industry has actually been really positive, um, which we've been pretty pleased with. Um, um, so people from like the ITF have, have expressed some interest. Um, so I gave a talk to the ITF TLS working group, um, and there was a, sort of like, there was a mixed reaction that there were some people who were very enthusiastic and then a few people who 
seem to view the idea as anathema um, because they they viewed ZK and Visa as sort of like backdoor tool, which I disagree with, but I guess is a fair a fair objection. Um, well, middlebox is a let's just say that as somebody who's worked and spent twenty years managing middleboxes, I am violently, utterly imposed to any form of middlebox anywhere, anywhere, <laughs> anyhow, because they are just a world of misery. And the technology behind them lasts for about a decade before everybody realizes how miserable they are, and then they disappear. But the IETF mm -hmm. objection, Paul, was around um, the, a, a privacy concern that basically looking at a zero knowledge middlebox as a sort of a back door to that violates privacy in some way, or yeah, um, I, I guess some people felt that. So one of the things I suggested was that it might be interesting to imagine extensions to TLS uh, for the sort of express purpose of supporting zero knowledge proofs about TLS traffic. Um, and I guess most of the opposition focused on people who were, were, were people who felt that adding sort of any extension at all to TLS to support any kind of introspection, even if sort of protected, even if the privacy is protected by these, the guarantees of these zero knowledge proofs um, is, is akin to some sort of decryption architecture. Um, and on, on that basis, that it's something yes. that they, they should and just you categorically know what? not consider. They're right. Because over the last 30 to 40 years of the ITF, every time they have added an exception like that, it's been abused by somebody and the whole purpose, like, you know, we've just seen this so many times in um, HTTPS and then, you know, in SSL123 and then TLS1101112, where exceptions were just abused by somebody and ultimately used either for outright criminal enterprise or for what I would regard as corporate criminality to intercept your data and then sell it. So, for example, in the US, you've got telcos at the moment selling women's uh, information to governments so that they can um, take them to court for you know decisions that they've made about their own bodies. Mm -hmm. That's happening today, by the way. Mm -hmm. but, but again, it's we are talking about objections on ideological um, and the, the potential for abuse, but uh, something that would be a TLS extension correctly implemented would not violate that privacy. It's just simply gonna make it easier to do yeah. To do math, Paul, is that that's that would be kind of your presentation. Um, yeah, although I mean, I I don't like thinking about it just as doing math. I mean, I think it's yeah. important also to think about the context. I mean, as, as Greg suggested, mm -hmm. um, but I think the the adding a TLS extension is in some sense neutral because ultimately it's what yeah. people and and organizations do with that extension that has this sort of like. Um, yeah, and there, sort of and there is, and there is the tautology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there that, is there exactly there is that potential. And that's what's for been proven sure. over the last thirty years that just misery compounds upon misery. Mm -hmm. Every time in the ITF, uh, we've done those. Not we, but I'll, I'll use a, a group we, not me we. There, um, every time that you know we as an industry have adopted some sort of exceptional use case that allows for interception, it it just becomes a, a point where a crowbar and in the form of a lot of money gets applied, and then it becomes mm -hmm. a de facto industry option because that information is valuable, right? The reason mm -hmm. that Facebook and Google are opposed to middle boxes is because they are the middle box and they get value from that. So any form of middle box that tries to get done will be blocked by them. There was um, a case in the mm -hmm. United States uh, that a group of, an, an industry association brought against the state of Maine regarding the state of Maine's law saying you have to opt in 
so that your private data can be used in all of these different ways. Because the default was, uh, no, you'd need to opt out. And the state of Maine says, no, you need to opt in. And a lawsuit was brought saying, no, we don't want people to have to opt in. That would suck because of all the revenue we'd lose. So mm-hmm. we know yeah. that the interests of service providers were aligned with uh, abusing their customer base. Yeah. Uh, they mm-hmm. lost that lawsuit, thankfully. And the, the state so of the ITF law stands. But, um, yeah. So, so, you, mm-hmm. so Greg, any, I think where you're going in, here is what the IETF has yeah. to say in, in your mind, if they're objecting to any extensions to DLS is, uh, is on those grounds because it's going to yes. get abused. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the first and only time we've actually had a version of TLS in the history of the protocol that has no carve outs for interception. And this is the mm-hmm. only time that we've actually not seen the encryption abused. So when I talked mm-hmm. about downgrade attacks, like before, you know, there were middle boxes that would take a you know, SSL 1.2 and then downgrade it to TLS 1 <laughs> outbound. And basically mm-hmm. there was no point in being encrypted. And we had large financial institutions who thought that they were secure suddenly not being secure because the middle box was the weakness. Now that was an implementation problem, but they didn't, the, the middle box wasn't able to scale. And so what they did was we said, well, we don't want to do TLS 1.2 because that would, you know, we can't support that. At, this is 10, 15 years ago. And so they just did TLS uh, you know, HTTP 1.0, HTTPS 1.0 encryption just to try and make their middle boxes look like they were working when they weren't, right? So mm-hmm. there's just so much room for abuse and in every form of abuse has been abused that mm-hmm. I don't think you will ever get traction in the IETF. Mm-hmm. The way yeah, you but- might get traction is where you avoid doing this in the network and there are niche cases, like I said, financial institutions who need to track everything that leaves the company as a public you know, to do DLP, to, you mm-hmm. know, what did people say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's a reasonable objection. However, I would push back a little bit and say that it, it, the adding an extension because our existing implementation already works for TLS 1.3, adding an extension wouldn't necessarily give a new capability to anyone. Um, it would purely be a sort of performance optimization um, because we already showed that the that the protocol itself can be used with with ZKMB, so adding an extension would mm-hmm. just sort of make things faster. Um, yeah. So it wouldn't. And I, and I, I think also a carve I think also the ITF is very tired of TLS 1.3, and mm-hmm. there would be no willingness to go and spend time and effort on changing it because it's taken 20 years to get here. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't something that's going to change overnight. You if you decided you wanted to have that. To, to follow that thread, you are talking a five-year process mm-hmm. um, for sure. And there are good reasons as to why it would be, even five years would be optimistic, I would say a decade. When we're talking mm-hmm. about features in the IPv6 protocol that are coming in today as a result of 10 years of effort. Mm-hmm. Well, Paul, how do you feel about um, how far your research has gotten? Is this uh, more or less proof of concept, or is it actually at a point where it could conceivably be optimized and brought to productization? Um, yeah, so I think the we're still in the research stage, um, but I, I'm really, really optimistic that um, sort of some kind of productization or deployment is possible on like a pretty short um, time scale. Um, the, so the, the ongoing research we're doing that ex- that accelerates the, the prover um, using sort of better, newer zero knowledge proof tools um, is really, really promising. So I think like probably in like on a two to three year time scale, um, mm-hmm. this technology could be ready for for productization. Probably in limited cases still, um, but yeah, so, I think it's it's on the cusp of of being ready for deployment. Yeah. 
Is that uh, research you're going to be working on, Paul? And, and if so, are you looking for more folks to contribute to uh, your research team? Um, yeah, I mean, we have we have lots of uh, ongoing work. So if you're interested in, I guess, doing a PhD or a master's degree in computer science, then you should apply to the University of Michigan. Um, especially if this research sounds interesting to you, then apply and mention my name in your application. Um, yeah, we're going to be working a lot on sort of different applications of ZKMBs, but then also sort of accelerating the core um, architecture. Um, I guess my from from your listeners and from like the 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 technology and the networking community um i'm interested to hear like opinions and also like ideas for like use cases um if people have places where they think this could be useful or they they know of a place where there's a very clear tension between those like privacy and verifiability that causes um things to not be done today or, or mm -hmm. like suboptimal solutions, like some sort of man in the middle architecture, um, like email me or reach out. Um, I, I also yeah. will, my, my Twitter is, my Twitter handles at PAG, P-A-G underscore crypto. Um, and that's crypt cryptography, not cryptocurrency. I made it way before like <laughs> Bitcoin was popular. And that's an important, so. <laughs> I was actually thinking, am I going to ask you about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get it. People get confused about this a lot. Seemingly I get yeah. followed by a lot of like cryptocurrency bots that think I'm going to like give them the, the hot tip about the new coin. <laughs> Um, and then they're like sorely, sorely disappointed when I don't like tweet about cryptocurrency at all. But Paul, you mentioned um, email. Are you willing to share that on the air here? Uh, yeah, totally. So my, my Michigan email is paulgrub, P-A-U-L-G-R-U-B at umich.edu. Umich.edu. Actually putting that in the show notes right now, Paul. Uh, so that that's great, Paul. Um, again, P-A-G underscore crypto on Twitter, uh, Paul Grubb at umich.edu. If you want to mm -hmm. reach out to Paul, those will be in the show notes. And uh, Paul, any other venues there, a Slack group or IRC, anything else where, that people are gathered talking about this research we should know about? Gosh, I don't know. Maybe I should set one up, but no, not right now. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> Have enough. Have you thought Paul. about starting a podcast? And <laughs> there's a thing on Twitter, and then you go famous. You say, here's, the, here's a link to my my SoundCloud on my podcast or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, Professor Paul Grumps, thank you for sharing your research with us today on heavy networking. Uh, thanks to all of you out there for listening. And if you're listening to this, you're not 100% clear on why you would care about uh, zero-knowledge middle boxes. I, one of the takeaways maybe reevaluate your current traffic inspection architecture because yeah, there's no zero knowledge middle box you can buy today, but as Paul's alluding to here, maybe such a product is coming or maybe you need to completely rethink this whole middle box thing you've been relying on and try something else to meet your security and compliance obligations as Mr. Farrell would argue for vociferously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can continue the conversation also at the Packet Pushers free Slack group. It is open to everybody, even if you work for a vendor. That's fine. Just no marketing, be an excellent human, or we're going to boot you out. But otherwise, enjoy that Slack conversation with over 2,000 engineers from around the world. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. And we'll see you in there. And maybe you don't like to chat, but you would like to hear a bit more from the Packet Pushers. Try our free privacy-respecting newsletter. That is called Human Infrastructure Magazine. We send it out on Thursday afternoons, and we always include a couple of nerdy memes for you to LOL at. Packetpushers.net slash newsletter for that. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>